This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Awareness of, I'm not just a man or woman that's prone to anger or prone to wor- worry. I'm a man or woman who very much can be guilty of wanting this prizing this, protecting this, and that's what causes me to respond in anger and worry. Oh, you'll fight better against sin and you'll stay a little freer. So I want to show you some of the fruit because this is hard. I keep saying, yes, this is hard. This is not fun. Uh, Sometimes, you know, I get it. People on Amazon will say one star, another book to make you feel bad about yourself. Well, I didn't write it to make you feel bad about yourself, but think about it. We live in a culture where I want everything to just be you are wonderful. And these are Christians saying this, which is sad. You you know, think about often surgery and the the path towards feeling better can have you feeling worse initially. That's kind of what this issue is like. Some of you would think, I would rather have never dealt with this. Okay, but do you want to keep living like you're living? frustrated with what you're frustrated about and, and, and having the problems you do in relationships. So it's not fun, but oh, so worth it. So I'm gonna try to give you, what are some of the fruits that you could begin to expect if you head down this path and say, God, show me my heart, and then you begin to work on, by his grace and for his glory, repenting. Number one, you will start to really get free, maybe for the first time. And that's the kind of freedom that Hebrews 12 is talking about. When it says in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Therefore we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside, notice it's our choice. As a believer, you can try to run the race loaded up with weights and entangled with sins. That's why we got so many Christians that are just acting like the Christian life is not joyful, is not refreshing, is not it's because they're, they're still so tangled up with certain sins and they're carrying certain weights of what they think they have to have and how life has to be. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. You'll begin to get free and live the Christian life so much better because remember, idols blind you and bind you and neither one of those things are effective for running you'll just feel so weighted down and you'll feel like life is so arduous and hard and life is hard but but in many cases it doesn't have to be as hard as it feels for some believers because there's something they're wanting prizing protecting clinging to that they don't realize this very thing is what's making your life harder than it has to be Living with idols is like trying to run with your hand in front of your face. You can do it. It's just not very effective. A woman in our church, when I first preached this series, uh, right before the book came out in 2012, she wrote me this after the conclusion of the series where we had a big repentance Sunday where I asked people to identify what they thought some of their top idols were, and then we all spilled out of our seats and came down front, and I had a cross set up here, and I wanted people to visibly lay this down and say, God, I'm giving you this. I've been living for this. I've been protecting this. I've been promoting this, and I'm giving it up. I want to live for you. So after that service, she writes me this email. She says, let me just tell you how much God's grace has been poured out on me. First of all, Sunday was amazing. 
Then she says this, it was all capitals, so hard for me to walk up front and wait to leave my idols at the foot of the cross. I never noticed how I cling to them for self-pity and loathing. I began to realize, who am I without these? After I crumbled my list of idols at the foot of the cross, I wasn't sure what I was feeling. I wanted to still worry and stress about my idols, and the big one, for me, is having to be adored and loved and cherished with tons of affection and attention from my husband. This one idol has crippled me. After I crushed my list of idols, I thought maybe I was feeling numb, empty. Then God spoke to my heart. It was peace, peace that I can get all things I need from him. He is my husband and lover of my soul. I can do all things through him. As these thoughts came flooding in, it was so freeing and such an intimate and loving moment with my creator God. What a wretched person I am. But thank God he has forgiven me and convicted my heart of my sin. I am free from my chains. Now here's what's interesting, since I'm a pastor, I know this couple. I know, I've known this young man she married from, from a, as a child. He's not a terrible guy, but he is a very simple man of few words, all right? He's just not all she was hoping for. Here's what's interesting, but as she kept bringing all these expectations, it was really wrecking their marriage, so he constantly thought, I don't know, but I know she's not happy with me. She's not happy with me. She's not happy with me. They're still in our church. And she now has significant health issues. And, and Vicki, they're at a different campus. We have three campuses now. But Vicki ran into her recently and said, how are you guys doing? Here's what she said. This is after this email. Years after. She said, oh, Vicki, after Jesus Christ, my husband, Bobby, is the greatest lover I've ever, 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 ever had in this life. She began, don't hear me holding a carrot on a stick, but she ended up getting far more of what she actually wanted after she stopped demanding it. Does that make sense? I'm not promising you, but it's interesting to me how often when we will stop saying, I must have, I must have, I must have, and you say, God, I want you. You'll meet my needs. Sometimes, you end up, even in our marriage, I just thought, literally, I know this is gonna sound bad, but hopefully you can relate to it as a sinner. I just thought to myself, when I chose to repent, I was like, all right, God, I guess I'll never read again. But for your glory, I'm gonna love this woman. I'll never be the last one at a party again, but I'm gonna love this woman. Here's what's interesting. I read 83 books last year, you guys, and I have a wonderful marriage. See, it's a lie. Satan loves to exaggerate things. If I do what she wants, I'll never read again. She wasn't saying no to ever read again. But she just wanted to know, can we have a conversation? Do you want to know me? And once she knew that I want to know her, it's not bottomless. We tend to treat each other like, if I did what you want, there's no end to it. It's not true. I was just laughing and talking to a guy right, right during the break that this summer my church gave me a sabbatical. And... Uh, you know, I'm a very busy guy. I go, 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 go. So we were together all day, every day, every night, every minute. And so like three weeks into this, my wife is delightful, but she just talks, talk, 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 talk always. And, uh, and when she's not talking, it's not good. That means I'm in trouble. You know, I'm just like, oh, she's quiet. Something's wrong. You know, we'll be riding in the car. I'm like, 
She's not talking. I'm like, are we okay? She's like, oh yeah, 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 I'm just tired. Or, oh, it's one of the kids. And I'm, I'm like, I roll down the window. It's not me. Oh, yeah, that's fine. As long as it's not me. Wonderful. And so I turned to her like three weeks into this. I'm like, are we okay? Like, you don't, you seem off. Like, she's like, what? I'm like, you're not talking. She's like, honey, I'm with you every day, all day, every night. I've said everything I have to say to you. I can't, she said, I can't think of anything else to say. I didn't know it could happen, but it did. It took three weeks, but it can happen. It's not, you know, so it wasn't like, I never want you to read again. And I think that's what Satan loves us to think. What my spouse wants, I could never do. And if I did it, I'll never have what I want. That is a lie. And we don't serve a God like that. But you do need to be willing to sacrifice and say, Lord, what do you want? You've called me to love this woman. And and she's wired a certain way. I'm supposed to learn her. I tell guys, go to school on your wife. I'm supposed to learn how to love her well. And as I've chosen to, you guys, she loves me back. And she wants me to do the things I love. I want her to do the things she loves. And we don't have a perfect marriage, but we have a measure of what God, I think, meant for marriage to be instead of a war. Freedom, freedom, freedom. Oh, because that's where the good news of, of what God offers us, he's a good, good, good God. There'll be a freedom, there'll be a peace, and very often you end up getting some of the very things that you were hoping for, but it came after you died to the idolatrous version of what you were trying to do. God's hap- God is not a mean God. He's happy to give you a biblical, healthy, balanced version of some of the very things that you want. Number two, what could happen? You'll have a revival of gratitude for the gospel. Oh, if you loved the gospel before, as you begin to recognize your heart and root issues, you'll love it even more because you actually see how much more you even need it. It's not just this stuff, but oh, on a deeper level, I'm in desperate need for the power of the gospel. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, when you start to repent of the idols of your heart, you'll be even more grateful because you'll see more than ever your need for it. And that's where the good news of the gospel comes flooding in because you recognize Romans 1, 16, 17, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God to salvation and the power to rescue me from me and my petty little world that I would build and my small-minded kingdom that I would try to live for. He, he wants, you realize this? God wants better things for you than you would choose for yourself. Our God is a good God. He's not up there thinking, how can I make her life miserable? She looks like she's having too much fun. His, his finger's never quivering above the smite button, right? But sometimes we're guilty of these thoughts of God. If I did what God expected of me, buckle up for misery, and, right? And yet, we think, oh, surely if I did what I want is when I'll be most happy. But it's not true. It's not true. He gives us the power to say no to what we want so that we can experience the yes of what he has for us. And he's good. He's good. He's good. He's good. Biblical counselor Ed Welch says, the path of change goes through the heart 
and continues on to the gospel where God chose to most fully reveal himself in the death and resurrection of Christ. I do say this to people, and, and I have chances to interview about this, like I was doing a podcast just last week with some young guy in some state, and this was new to them about, about idols of the heart, and, and he said, is there anything you'd want our listeners to know? And I said, yes, because I've learned this. If you can imagine just in this weekend, but imagine if you took like 11 weeks to really dig into this, this can be very dark and introspective as you dig into your own heart. So what Ed Welch is indicating, I also promote. When you're gonna say, God, show me my own heart, more of it, you better also be saying, and show me more of my Savior, more of my Savior. If you just begin to see more of your heart, it can be quite depressing. So I, I like to say it this way, not original with me. I think a Puritan said it somewhere along the way. For every look at yourself, take t 10 looks at Christ. So say, if you did choose to buy the book and say, I'm gonna study this some more, I would encourage you, then read the Gospels. Let that be your Bible reading so that you're seeing Jesus. Seeing Jesus, does that make sense? Seeing how he interacts with broken sinners and he meets you where you are. He doesn't condemn, he doesn't judge, he's compassionate. You gotta balance this out. So even like, I'm not preaching here tomorrow, but when I do stay and preach on a Sunday for a Gospel Treason Conference, Sunday, I don't do more of digging into our heart. I do a message I call, Behold Your God. And I preach from Isaiah 40. Enough of us. See God again. See your Savior again. So if you're gonna take this journey beyond this weekend, don't lose sight of your Savior. Does that make sense? Don't lose. And some of you are more prone towards self-loathing and introspection in an unhealthy way you need to make sure that you see plenty of Jesus in the process. And you might need to invite a friend to journey with you to just keep you balanced. Because the answer isn't, the sooner you see yourself as even more of a wretch, the more you'll be joyful and free. Not necessarily. Does that make sense? It's an, an appropriate awareness, but then you quickly don't wallow, but you say, and that's why I need a savior. And that's why I need a savior. I love John Newton for many reasons. He wrote Amazing Grace, but he was a great pastor. And uh, one of my favorite books I've read in the last couple of years was The Letters of John Newton. Oh, that man understands grace and was a wonderful, compassionate pastor. And I think, it's, I think it's neat what he said. He was in his 80s and he was blind when he died. And he said, I've forgotten a lot of things, but this I know. I am a great sinner and I have a great savior. You better keep hold of both. Because as you go, show me my own heart, you'll see that you're a great sinner. Don't lose sight that you have a great savior. Number three, you might start to see relationships more clearly for the first time in your life. Remember, I keep saying, while idolatry is at play, you actually are not seeing people as clearly as you think. You might begin to see relationships more clearly for the first time. Talking about having a more accurate assessment of yourself and others around you, especially those that are closest to you. Because when your heart is teeming and surging with the deception of idols, you don't see things clearly. You think you do, but you don't. That's why the Bible always tells you to start with yourself. Matthew 7, 3 to 5. So helpful. Now, here's what's interesting. Unbelievers love to quote from this chapter. Verse 1 says, judge not lest you be judged. I just heard that at, gym, at the gym last week. They know that verse. 
But they think it means, who are we to judge anybody about anything? Any way anybody lives is fine. And if you think something's wrong, you're unbiblical. That's not what the passage is teaching. Because notice it goes on to say, get the speck out of your own, get the log out of your own eye, and then you can see more clearly to help your brother or sister. So there's a place for one anothering. There's a place, the Bible does, that same chapter, Matthew 7, goes on to say that you'll know them by their fruits and a good tree does not produce. And then he goes on to say there's a narrow path and few there be that find it and there's a wide path that everybody thinks is right. And he goes on to say, why do you call me Lord, Lord and not do the things that I say? The whole chapter does not teach that there's no place for right and wrong. It's just saying as you, as you relate to people around you, don't just jump in judging them telling them about their sin, start with your own heart first, or you're not even seeing as clearly as you think you are. That's why he says, hypocrite. If you start by pointing out other people's stuff and being so worked up about other people's stuff, he says, you're a hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your own eye, then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Most of those planks, I think, that need to be removed from our eyes and our lives are idols. Things that I've wrapped my world around, things that my motives and desires and what I really worship are affecting why I relate to you the way I do, why I'm so touchy about that, why I get so upset. I got this phrase from Dave Harvey. One of my favorite marriage books is When Sinners Say I Do by Dave Harvey. And I've been using this since 2009 when I read it. See your own sin first. See your own sin is worse. See your own sin is what you need to be working on most. Oh, that's a game changer. It's like, see your own sin first. God, what am I not seeing about me? See your own sin is worse. Now, sometimes people struggle with this. They're like, what if it's not worse? Well, because in some situations, it's true. Someone's committed adultery and someone else was on the receiving end of it. And there may be things that are sinful in their life, but we have a sense as human beings, there's something worse here. Am I supposed to pretend that mine's worse? It's not what it means. It's worse because it's yours, right? You're gonna stand before God for whatever. I love to say to couples, I'm not here to decide who's most right, who's most wrong. We tend to always think, just like the game today, right now, there's gonna be a winner and there's gonna be a loser. And I don't wanna be the loser. So counseling's all about, tell me what's going on, tell me what's going on. Okay, you win, you lose. You loser, go repent. It, it's never that way. I do not care. I've never seen a marriage go sour all by one person. So I'll just say, whatever part God reveals to you is part of how this marriage reached this point, own it. It's yours. Let God work with them about their, what if they don't? Let God work. You work 100% on your part. So see your own sin first. See it as worse as in, it's mine. I'm not gonna stand before God for her sin. I'm gonna stand before God for mine. So it's worse. And then this is exciting. See it as what you need to be working on most because you can do something about it, especially with guys. I, like I had a guy recently, he reached out to me. I never liked this, but he reached out to me between sessions. I don't like all this stuff going on between sessions where she doesn't hear what he said and, and she doesn't know that he's already told me. Oh, what a mess. Let me help you. If you are counseling, don't allow that. I want everybody to hear everything together in the room. 
Oh, much more clarity. But anyway, he did it. He's like, I got to tell you, Pastor Brad, you just seem so focused on me. And, and here's what's so funny, because he's very controlling, and da, 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 da. he's like, and she even agreed. I thought, I bet. She has no choice. It's like, she even agreed that she has sin, and you're just not focusing on it that much. So, what's up? And I was somewhere else teaching. I was like, what's up? Because I'd like to knock you in that. But anyway, that wasn't my answer. <laughs> so, I collected my thoughts, and I calmed down. And then I wrote him, and I said, here's what's up. I've been doing this a while, and two reasons I'm most focused on you, because I really was, on purpose. I said, number one, I have seen the way God designed marriage and men and women is when the man changes, women respond. Women are responders. I, I find there's very few hardcore, rebel, nasty, mean women. They become that through men who do not love them well. Sorry. Uh, th this whole, if she'd just submit, you know, if you'd just shut up, that's where we, I want us to start here. Like, a man that's always thrown the submit card around, I'm like, something ain't right. You are not loving her well. When you love a woman the way Ephesians 5 says to love her, it's not hard to follow that man. It's when the woman is not convinced at all that you're for her. It seems like you're for you. So I start with the man. You know, I mean, you're trying to sort out, I don't care who's most wrong, I just know if I can get you going, owning your own sin, and loving and leading as a servant leader more, let's see what happens with her. So that's my first reason. And then I said, secondly, I'm sure he didn't want to hear this, but I was like, she keeps owning her sin readily. Oh, she owns it and she's ready to work on it. You say very little in our sessions and you just keep arguing and trying to prove you're right. That's why I'm focused on you. She's owning her your sin, you're not. You're the man, she's the woman. He wrote back, Oh, okay. <laughs> and now they're doing better. But it's like, I, you know, I don't struggle with that. How I used to like, well, who would I start with? I don't, who should I focus on? I got two sinners here. No, the man. Now, don't hear me saying they're always the most wrong. But when a man, whatever his part is, begins to repent and do more of what God's called us to do, Typically, women respond. So I start with the man. See, your own sin first. Your own sin is worse. Your own sin is what you need to be working on most. Let me give you another good fruit you can anticipate as you begin to try to repent on a heart level. Number four, you'll have a better perspective on trials and how God uses them for our good. Remember I said don't waste your pain. When you begin to understand heart issues, then you can more more than you used to approach every point of adversity and suffering and heat as like, God, is there anything you want me to see about me through this? Don't waste this suffering. Please teach me what you want to teach me through this. In the 1600s, Samuel Rutherford was a godly pastor who spent two years in prison for preaching the gospel. And he says it was there in that prison that he made a great discovery about the source of enduring happiness. Imagine. Listen to what I think is a shocking statement and yet absolutely true. And I hope in light of our weekend you'd say, I think I know what he's talking about. He says, quote, if God told me some time ago that he was about to make me as happy as I could be in this world, and then he told me that he was going to begin by crippling me in all my limbs, 
and removing me from all my usual sources of enjoyment. I should have thought it a very strange mode of accomplishing his purpose. And yet, how is his wisdom manifest even in this? For if you should see a man shut up in a closed room, idolizing a set of lamps and rejoicing in their light, and you wish to make him truly happy, you would begin by blowing out all his lamps and then throw open the shutters to let in the light of heaven. You understand what he's saying? That's us so often bowing down to the little flickering lights of children or marriage or friendship or career or whatever, not knowing that it gets any better than this and instead of wanting what he really wants for us, asking God to get in on our agenda and bless these little lamps. Now I don't want you to mishear what I've been saying all weekend. I hope you don't roll out of here and think, God hates children and marriage and work and pleasure and everything. This is a scary God. No, 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 no. He's good. He loves us. And for our own good, he will not allow us to turn good things he gave us into little God things because it's destructive to us, those around us, and we'll feel estranged from him. And he wants you to know him and have real intimacy and joy and purpose. And so he will get in your way and begin to take things. I said, when it's taken and shaken to get your attention so that then and often only then you're like, what now? And you end up experiencing for the first time something you always should have had, what you all, where you always should have had your first affection. That's us so often, bowing down to the little flickering light of children or marriage or hobbies or image or status or stuff. All the while, there's a greater, more glorious light that's found in Christ and the gospel. But God knows often until he blocks us from the things that we're chasing, we will not turn to him. He loves us enough to do that very thing. John Piper, commenting on Samuel Rutherford's quote, said this, Oh, how I pray when God in his mercy begins to blow out my lamps, I will not curse the wind. Number five, you'll start to feel more conviction of sin. You're like, why would I want that, Bran? Well, you actually do. It's not a good sign. If I was to say to you, when's the last time you felt specifically convicted by the Holy Spirit? of something and you confessed it as sin and even to the point thought, I need to go back to someone and say, you know what, I was wrong. I sinned against you when I, will you please forgive me? It, it shouldn't be like, I can't even think of the last time. That ought to be something regular because we are sinners. And so I want to keep short accounts and I also, I love a sense of God alive to me that he's really working in my life. You know, sometimes that camp that goes too far with the Holy Spirit, everything has to be God told me to go naked and jump off a roof, and, and yet we can throw the baby out with the bathwater. I love a sense, is God, is this Spirit alive? I love His Word. His Word is my authority, but He gave us a Spirit. He gave us a Spirit. Yes, I want encouragement from the Spirit, and I, and I have moments of that, but I want Him to be working in my life, where it's like, puts his finger on something like, oh, your Lord, you're right. You're right. You're right. And I want to confess it, not wallow, but confess it and say, Lord, help me. And where it's appropriate, I say, you know what? I need to go back to them and say, will you forgive me? That was, that, I try to do it with staff. It doesn't matter who it is. 
what, what the pecking order is quite, it, it doesn't matter. I want to continue to be humble and, and lean into killing pride and cultivating hum- humility and for him to be, because here's what I find. The more I lean into being sensitive to the spirit and responding, the more I hear from him. And the more I live as if there is no Holy Spirit and I just do my own thing, the more that seems to be the case. Again, don't hear me saying I'm that wild God told me. But we have a spirit. We have a spirit. And I want to be sensitive to that in line with God's word. You'll start to feel more conviction of sin, which is not bad because it puts you in a really glorious place. You think about it. When you begin to be convicted and brokenhearted over your sin, he meets you right there. You think about Psalm 34, 8 says, God draws near to the brokenhearted. Isaiah 66, God says, but on this one will I look. This is an amazing verse, Isaiah 66. You just think, what? We know that God is omniscient. He sees all, knows all. Nothing goes without his notice, right? But what catches his attention? What would cause the God of the universe? We've got chronicles that says his eyes move to and fro throughout the earth. What catches his attention? And he's like, oh my goodness. Where he says to the seraphim and the cherubim, would you look at that? Look at that. It's not what we usually think. It's not like, look at that gifted man. with all. Look at that woman in her Bible teaching class and her pencils. Look at his end time charts. You know what, you know what draws God's attention? Humility and a contrite spirit that is quickly humbled by his word. And when he tells you something, he shows you something, he convicts you of something, you quickly say, yes, Lord. Yes, that's what catches his attention because it's so rare and it gets his blessing. Look at it, Isaiah 66. God says, but on this one will I look. On him who is humble and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Instead of, I'll think about it, God. I might do that, I might not. God, you show me. You show me. By your grace, I'll do it. I want to live in submission to your word. You show me I'm wrong. I want to change. You show me what that looks like in this relationship. I'm not going to keep saying that's just not who I am. That's not me. That's not me. I know it's not me, but would you make it me? Would you make it me? By God's grace, if Vicki was here, she would, she would assure you that I'm not perfect, but she would say to you, this man is so different. She tells me all the time. And it doesn't mean I'm done. So don't ever think you can hit cruise control. Good, I can stop working on this. No, that would be a bad thing. But just recently, I mean just, just a few weeks ago, oh, what was it? I wish I could remember exactly. It was something that came up, and she was fearful. She's often more fearful than I am. That's fine. God makes us different. My first thought is always, it's going to work out. It's just going to work out. How? I don't know. It's going to work out. That's just how I'm worried. Her first thought is, this is going to end in disaster in nine different ways and soon. Right? She loves God, but that's, that's her and so, in the early days of our marriage, I was not sympathetic to that. I was just like, hmm, like, what's your problem? We know God. He's good. Enough. And even once we would discuss it, I was like, do we have to talk about this? I'd say, we've talked about this, right? I thought we talked about this. Let's do what we talked about. Done. And, you know, when you go to school on your wife and you realize, he just makes us different. She needs to talk through things more than once. And it's a kindness. It's a way of showing her love 
to say, I will give you the time, I will listen to you as if we've never said this before. And even try not to look like we've said this before. <laughs> and really, right? And she just needs space to emote and go through it again. We had one of those moments. And by God's grace, he helped me. So I'm praying specific things. And it's like the Holy Spirit said, now, right now, is when you need to do one of those things we've been working on, okay? I was like, yes, Lord. Look kind, caring, listening. And, and, uh, and it ended well. It took some time. And then I went to my chair to read, and she went to do something else. And she came back like an hour later. And she stuck her head in the doorway, and she said, do you know how loved I feel? I said, tell me. <laughs> she said, you have changed so much. She said, that interaction that we just had earlier, I know you wouldn't have, you know, thought that was necessary. The way you responded to me was loving. I felt so loving. I felt like it was okay to do this, that you weren't judging me, you weren't condemning me. I was like, well, that's the work God has done. And she said, well, thank you. You are different. Don't hear me saying I'm perfect, but I'm saying God has changed me and he can change you. He can help you. That is not my normal. I'm that Mr. Command, take the next hill. If we see it, here's what we do. Let's do it. Why do we have to talk about this again? It's like, that's not fun for some people to live with. And God just intends to put people around you that you have to change. You're supposed to change to become more like Jesus. It can happen for you as well. But the idols of our heart will just whisper constantly, oh, it's not that bad, it's not that big of a deal, and what will you do without me? What will you do without me? This is all you've known, this is all you've known, this is all you've known, you'll be lost, you'll be lost. Francis Fenelon wrote this. He was like some French pastor to the king, one of the kings, Louis somebody, in the court. And I, uh, one of his books is one of my favorites, The Letters of Francis Fenelon. He's got some keen insights. I know he's a bit of a mystic, but so I don't agree with everything. But, oh, listen to what he says, because this is spot on. He says, as, so I'm trying to tell you, as you look and see more of the sin beneath the sin in your life, this is going to help you, but you don't want to take it in the wrong direction of self-loathing. This is what he's about to say, and it's so insightful. He says, as the inner light increases, you will see the imperfections which you have heretofore seen as basically much greater and more harmful than you'd seen them up to the present. But this experience, far from discouraging, will help to uproot all your self-confidence and to raise to the ground the whole edifice of pride. Nothing marks so much the solid advancement of a soul as this view of his wretchedness without anxiety and without discouragement. Do you understand that? If as he shows you more of your sinfulness, you're like, oh, I'm awful, I'm terrible, I then that's Satan pulling it in the wrong direction. You should see it and say, oh, that's why I need a Savior. That's why I have a Savior. That's why he, he came to save broken people just like me. You gotta read the Gospels and see, you know, a woman caught in the very act of adultery, thrown down at his feet. What does he say? Go and sin no more. He, you, you watch all his interactions with sinners, and that's supposed to form how we think he's relating to us. Don't let your flesh tell you otherwise. Don't let your enemy. You realize one of the main strategies of our enemy is he's the accuser of the brethren. 
He's the accuser. We've got it in Revelation. We've got it in Zechariah or Zephaniah. I forget what. He loves to accuse us and say, look at you. See, I'm constantly trying to help my counselees distinguish Holy Spirit from Satan. Because often they'll think they're hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit and I'll say, does it sound just condemning? Does it just rub your nose in it and say, look at you. You call yourself a Christian. How can you be a Christian? Look at what you, and does it cause you to want to throw in the towel and just quit? Uh Uh-huh, that's not the Holy Spirit. I hope you realize the Holy Spirit doesn't operate that way. Our Father doesn't operate. He will show you more of you, but he'll show you just a little bit and he'll give hope with it to change. And then as you work on that, I hope this doesn't discourage you, he'll show you a little bit more and you'll work on that. And then sometimes I'll have a year where he'll show you something we've worked on before that needs to be worked on again. But it's never condemnatory. It's never, you should just give up, you're so pathetic. All that tone of you're so pathetic is not of the Holy Spirit. You've gotta learn to distinguish that. That's what Fenelon's talking about. A mark of a spiritually mature man or woman is the ability, because we've got some Christians that I just can't even think of myself as bad. It's too discouraging. Well, something's not right, because we are sinners. I have sometimes people who write me and say, if you say that one more time, that we're sinners, we're saints, Pastor Brad. We're saints, we're saints. I'm like, we're sinner saints. And Paul, his entire life, can, he said, call me a sinner. Then as he got older and walked with the Lord longer, he said, call me the, what? Do you think Paul was worse spiritually at that point? He was not, you guys. Here's what happens. The closer you get to God and the greater intimacy you develop with your Savior, the more awareness you have of your sinfulness. But it's not debilitating. It causes you to only rejoice even more in grace and in a Savior. He said, call me the chief of sinners because when you know you're the chief of sinners, you just celebrate a savior. When you think you're just an itty bitty sinner, you don't get that excited about grace. You can just drop amazing off the front of it. And these people that don't think they're a big sinner are not very fun to live with. And I run into it constantly. It's like, I was counseling this couple and it was like session seven and it was bad. I mean, he had flown to Seattle and said, I'm never coming back. He's a pilot. He just emailed me and said, take me off the church membership. Take me out of the men's group. Take me off everything. I'm never coming back. I'm sick of being wrong. I'm sick of being wrong. Sick of, they'd only been married less than a year. And so I work real hard to get him back to Cincinnati and out of Seattle into my office. And I mean, he's owning his sin. Same thing. This is, this, this is reversed. He's owning it. She's just very quiet. Just, and she was, whoa, whoa. Because she was in our small group before she married him. And I mean, you, you can spot a Pharisee a mile away. And we knew. And so one night when she announced, well, I'm getting married. We're all like, God help that man, whoever that is. Like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. And she was not a young pup. And, and she would, you could tell she was set in this dominant, just hyper-perfectionistic, I'll tell everybody what's, oh. And uh. Uh, she, so at the end of the session, she said, I do need to say something. I said, okay. She said, this is just all, this counseling is way too much about sin. It's just sin, 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 sin. It, you've talked about bitterness, and you've talked about this, and you've talked about that. And, and here's what I think is interesting. That is not all I talked about. I'd talked about grace, and I'd talked about the gospel. But I've found people who are Pharisees 
are hypersensitive to the mention of sin, and they do not like being thought of as a sinner. Something's not right. And so I said, well, you know what? It's not the first time I've heard that. Now, this was session seven. It was not going well. She wasn't responding, so I thought, you know, I'm going to do something that she's not going to like, but I don't care. I said, you're not the first person that has ever said that to me. But I said in almost every instance, people who talk like you're talking right now, later, they get saved. Then she was really mad. (laughs) But it's true. I've seen it in my church. These people, I had another woman that was a pastor's daughter, but she would constantly tell me, oh, your preaching is just so much about sin. There's just so much sin, Pastor Brad. It's just, just," and it wouldn't be. It was the book of Romans. It's like there's grace, there's Jesus, there's sin. There's grace, there's Jesus, there's sin. But when you are a self-righteous Pharisee that's doing it for yourself, you just hear sin, sin, and you don't want to hear it because you don't know what to do with it, because you haven't met the Savior, you're, you're busy pr- trying to pretend you're not that bad. And when this woman, who's still in our church, got saved, because she used to sit in the services with the Clint Eastwood look, you know, furrowed brow, I haven't had a bowel movement in two months, you know, just kind of like, <laughs> you know, just very troubled and displeased always. And now, I kid you not, as I'm preaching, just smiling and nodding. I mention sin as much as I ever have, and Jesus, and grace, and she hears it right, and it doesn't bother her because she knows her Savior now. When you don't actually know him, you don't want to hear about sin because you don't know what to do with that. So, oh, you will appreciate greater conviction of sin, and it shouldn't cause you to shut down and wallow it should give you a healthy sense of, and that's why we have a Savior, and that's why there's the gospel, and that's why there's the Holy Spirit. Oh, you get free from idols of the heart, and you'll start to experience a number of things, clarity in some of your relationships to work your way through it a little more, less expectation of other people, less disappointment, greater joy and purpose. Listen, there's a freedom like some of you have never thought possible when you start to repent of your idols. On the others, it'll take some time, won't be easy, but oh, so, so don't leave this fuzzy. Here's what I like to say to my counselees. Nobody changes in fuzzy land. So if you've just got a general warm, fuzzy notion of idolatry and you roll out of here this weekend and you do more, know more about this, not much will happen in your life. But if you take this seriously and you say, God, never mind Brad Bigney and his issues and la, 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 la. What are mine, God? What are mine? Please. And then don't just say, show them to me. And you're like, okay, you got to do something about it. Put together a plan. What would it look like to repent? And you might need help. That's where accountability can be appropriate. Like, just open up to a friend and say, I'm wanting to work in the, and don't try to change six things at once. So when I work with my counselees, and I get them to identify top idols, I'll just say, now just start working on one. One. What would it look like to begin to say, God, help, help you. I need your help to catch myself in this area. Write new thinking and some new actions. Maybe memorize some scripture that goes along with that. Whatever it is, whether it's comfort or control or pleasure or whatever God's revealed to you, make a plan. And I find, sorry, writing it down. Writing it down. And then I put it with my morning Bible and I start my day saying, God, help me in this area. Help me in this area. Help me in this area. Oh God, would you be pleased?
to reveal more of yourself to us as Scott started us with Jeremiah 9. Lord, we don't want to glory in wisdom and, and, and power. We want to glory in, in understanding and knowing you. And Lord, the more we clear our hearts of idols, the more you choose to reveal yourself to us and draw near to us. And you allow us to increase in intimacy through your son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray that you would give us each greater intimacy with Jesus that we might that we might have the courage and humility to let go of some of the things we've clung to that are actually enslaving us and blinding us and affecting our relationships and hindering us from being more effective in ministry. Lord, do a great work in us for your glory and our good. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat>